Good morning. Our scripture will be taken from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Again, that's Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. And the Bible reads, Now, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or, or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but it did not bear, he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is God's word. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles open to, uh, to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be looking at that parable this morning. And uh, while you're doing that, uh, there is uh, one quick little advertisement I want to do before we, we pray and get into the text. If you were in our Bible classes this morning, you will have received uh, some information about these boxes, cardboard boxes, that were in each of the adult uh, classrooms. I think they were also in some of the kids' classes as well. And what those boxes are about are the, um, the Eastern European Missions Million Dollar Sunday, EEM, as you know, uh, has been an active part of our church ministry for a very, very long time, for many years here at MAC. And again, what they are uh, attempting to do is to raise over uh, really $2 million this year to put Bibles in the former countries and nations of the, uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, this year, uh, normally it's, uh, it's, it's states inside of the Ukraine. This year it's going to include Romania and Croatia. And these Bibles are actually going into school systems where they are being uh, petitioned to, our, to EEM to, to receive these Bibles so that they can be used in the public education uh, system. This last October, one of the uh, executives at EEM was invited to a meeting with one of the ministers of education for the nation of Ukraine. Uh, he was told how grateful they were for their partnership with EEM. And the quote from that meeting is EEM is a great partner in our work of changing the moral foundation of our country. And he went on to talk about how grades are up and, and behaviors are being changed in the schools, academic performance is up, discipline problems are down in the schools that have the Bibles. In Romania this year, the request is for more than 100,000 Bibles in the public schools in a little region called Transylvania. That's right, folks, we're going after Dracula. 100,000 Bibles in the public schools in Romania, also in Croatia, also in the Ukraine. Simply put, $5 gets a student a Bible, a personal Bible in the school. A $150 donation supplies Bibles for an entire classroom. $1,000 supplies Bibles for an entire school. $1,000 supplies Bibles for an entire school. 
What we need to do is to pray that God will continue to bless the planting of this seed in the hearts of people and to pray that, uh, that there be a great harvest and a great increase the number of people that recognize God as Father and Creator. Amen? And we're going to pray for that right now. Just a reminder, too, that those boxes are going to be uh, today, next Sunday, and October 4th in the classrooms. If uh, there's a, 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 an elder that you would like to give the money to or one of the staff ministers, you can certainly write a check out, uh, made out to EEM or make it out to MAC and uh, put down there in the little uh, memo line that this is for the EEM collection, and we'll make sure that all of that money goes to EEM to fund uh, the Bibles that are going to be distributed in those schools. And to that end, let's pray right now. Father, part of the joy that we have, and we know this because of the, the, the times that it happens over and over in our life, is that there's so much joy that is is derived in the way that your word speaks to our hearts and to our minds and, and ministers to our soul in such a way that as these, these great truths about your nature and character and all of the universe become more real and more of a, of, of a part of our value system and our worldview, and the more that we are changed by it, we find a joy welling up in our hearts. And we pray, Father, that that joy and that peace and all of the other uh, blessings that that entails, Father, that that be a part of, of, of what every human being experiences. That, that, that security, that, that confidence, that, that freedom from guilt, the, the transformation into a, 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 the human being that you always created us to be as loving and faithful and gentle and kind and generous and gracious in all that we do, Father. Uh, we pray that, that, that all of that be a part of the experience of every human being through Your Word and through the salvation that comes to us when our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus through faith. Thank You for the opportunity to give to this cause, Father, to be generous in, in spreading that joy and that peace and that blessing of being your children, Father, spreading that throughout this entire world. And so we pray, Father, for, for your word to go forth and to be powerful and, and to change lives. And now as we get ready to study that word in this place for ourselves, Father, in our own study, we're asking that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way, Father, that, that we walk out of this place transformed. Radically transformed, Father, into people that look like the Messiah, the Christ. We pray this, Father, with all of our heart to happen this morning as we study these words. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. It's not any secret. Uh, lots of studies have been done over the decades to, to make it sort of a piece of our, uh, our understanding of American culture, but you know, people tend to exaggerate their own positive characteristics and abilities, right? For instance, studies have shown that most drivers think that they're better than average, especially if they're a dude. Psychologists call this the state of illusory superiority. Illusory superiority. Recently, uh, last year, 2014, a team of British researchers tested this common 
better than average tendency by surveying 85 convicts in a prison in southeast England about their pro-social traits. The inmates, and now the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the sample was inmates 18 to 34 years of age. The majority of these had been jailed for a number of years for acts of violence against other human beings and robbery. And some of these, both. The inmates completed the questionnaires anonymously. They were given a, a relative privacy to, to, to do the questionnaire. Here's what the study concluded after everything was weighed and, and sampled. And I quote, compared with an average prisoner, the convicts rated themselves as more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, and more honest. Remarkably, they also rated themselves as higher on all these traits than an average member of the community, with one exception, law-abiding. The prisoners rated themselves as equivalent on this trait relative to an average community member, end of quote. Basically, we think pretty highly of ourselves. And it would seem that very few people in our world see a need for repentance. And again, there are lots of reasons for that, and we don't need to go into all of those, but here's the thing. Repentance means you have figured something out. Repentance means that you have figured something out. If you look at the original word, it literally means to, to change direction, to completely change your mind. The reason you're changing direction, the, 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 uh, the, the, the trajectory of your life in repentance is because you have figured something out. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 is telling people that if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you've got to change your life. You've got to figure something out in terms of who you are and God and what the kingdom of God is offering and what it's calling you to do and to be and to live as a member of that kingdom. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, produce the fruit of repentance. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth that has a lot of issues that it's dealing with and a lot of things that they do need to repent over. But one of the things that Paul helps clarify in their thinking is that there's more to repentance than just feeling sorrow. Repentance means that you have figured something important out about your life. One of the greatest biblical teachings on repentance comes from the story of the prodigal son, as you know. Here is this son, this young man, father very much alive and vibrant and dynamic in, in running the affairs of the estate and the family. This young son, though, wishes the father dead in order to get what the father has. He wants the inheritance. And the father, for inexplicable reasons, gives the son the inheritance. The son grabs the money. He runs off and goes off into a far country. He begins to squander the money on, on things that, that not, not just in their culture, but even in our own culture would be considered uh, sort of nasty. The son falls into a, 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 a destitute situation and status, and he even has to go to work as a, a Jewish kosher raised in a what is you know clean versus unclean kosher and unkosher in a kosher household. He is taking care of pigs, the epitome of unkosher, the the epitome of unclean, and he has dropped so far and has become so destitute in what it is that he is, he is doing and, and, and the situation that he finds himself that he even has to eat the food that he's feeding to those pigs just to, just to survive and sustain himself. That is one of Jesus' way in the storytelling of saying that this kid, 
is slowly but surely becoming a pig himself. You are what you eat, right? What you put into your mind and into your heart. He has to eat the food of the pigs in order to stay alive. And then in verse 17 of Luke chapter 15, we read these words. He came to his what? Senses. Let's say that together. He came to his senses. What Jesus is saying is that this boy who was up here and has gone off into a far country and has dropped and dropped and dropped to a, to a, to a destitute level has, has figured something out. He has figured out that his life has a wrong direction. His life has a wrong trajectory. That his life is downwardly mobile when it should be in a, in a different direction. And he decides that he's better off to go home and to be with his father. The prodigal son sees that he has to make an extraordinary change in his life. Now to boil it down again, repentance, spiritually speaking, is a pretty profound accomplishment. Repentance is a, a, a pretty profound spiritual accomplishment. Something of a spiritual nature and an intellectual nature is, is, getting, is getting accomplished in your life. Now, repentance is the subject of the text that, that Rod has just read for us. And it's also, that text is really, I think, one of the hard sayings of Jesus. But it's insightful in telling us a couple of things about repentance. First, that there is a universal need for repentance. There is a universal need for repentance. The text begins with, if you're reading the new NIV, it says that there were some people that were there. Actually, in the original language, there are these people that have come into the presence of Jesus. They, they have come from, from far off into the presence of Jesus, and they are there for one reason, and that's to tell him of an atrocity. They have sought out Jesus, have come into his presence to tell him about an atrocity. Verse 1. They told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. Now you know as well as I do that Israel in those days very, very politically anxious. Rome exercised power. Rome is exercising authority. And as is the case throughout history, conquered people suffer. And sometimes they suffer without end and they suffer profoundly. And quite frankly, knowing what we do of, of, of Roman soldiers, it's entirely plausible that they could have performed such an atrocity. Now, why do these people come all of this direction, all this way, to tell Jesus about the atrocity? I mean, we want to speed forward into that parable and, and, and to think about what in the world the fig tree doing in the middle of a vineyard. But the important question is to ask, why did these people come to ask Jesus about, or to tell Jesus about this atrocity that has been performed by Pontius Pilate and his soldiers? Perhaps they are seeking to tip the one that many are calling the Messiah into acting out on that, that role as Messiah and to restore Israel as the great superpower, the way it had been under David and, and under Solomon. Perhaps they're seeking to motivate him to some kind of anger, to stir the rage a little bit so that he can start formulating plans for, a re, uh, for retaliation, to strike back. The funny thing is, Luke does not tell us 
as we are told in other stories that this is the reason they're asking this question or coming into the presence of Jesus to engage with him is because they're trying to trap him or to trip him up in order to, to disillusion the people uh, with, with the teaching of Jesus or to discredit him in the eyes of the people or in the Romans. In this text, there's no indication that they're trying to use his response against him with the Romans in order to get rid of him. They have come and said, Can you believe what has happened? Galileans were murdered and Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifice. What it looks like to me is that they're coming to him for help and direction for what is next. And here is where Jesus asks something unexpected. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? These folks have come to Jesus to help him see the evil in Pontius Pilate. They've come to talk to him about this atrocity in order for Jesus to have a, a, a very clarified picture of the evil that is in Pilate. What Jesus has in mind and what he wants them to see is the evil that is in them. Many times, if we're to step onto this parable for a moment, many times a, a superior cause leads some to believe that it gives them superior character and it gives them a superior morality. That fighting the just cause makes one just. And we are the angels and they are the devils. We're the guys with the white hats, they're the guys with the black hats. That we're the angels, they're the devils. But Jesus, in this hard saying, says, think about this. You know, fighting for the righteous cause does not make one righteous. This is the illusory superiority that blinds humans to their own personal individual need to repent. That there is an evil force at work that will destroy all human beings, pilot or no pilot. And the just cause for which these people are struggling have blinded them to their own personal need to repent. Did the Galileans suffer this atrocity because they were worse sinners? Jesus says, no. But I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. And then to help them see this more clearly, Jesus asks another question. Of those 18 who died with the Tower of Siloam, when it fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty? that they were more guilty than all the others that were living in Jerusalem? Again, the answer, verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. What Jesus has done is to bring two conflicting assumptions to the forefront of our thinking about, and everyone's thinking about repentance. Now, if we were to come out of the, 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 the first century into the 21st century and think about it, South Texas, Bible Belt, what's the first thing you think of when you think of repentance? You think of that experience, that, that heart-wrenching, groveling experience reserved for the worst sinner. The assumption of Christ is that we all have had a tower fall on us. Dead in our transgressions. And the way out from under the tower that has fallen on us is through repentance. And repentance shows up all over the place. Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God has come near, what's the very next word? Repent. 
and believe the good news. When those folks in Jerusalem on Pentecost became convinced that they had been blind 50 days earlier during Passover when they disowned and crucified the Messiah, what did Peter tell them to do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Paul, the next book over, in Romans, when he's writing to a church that's struggling with all kinds of issues and really needing to make some, some changes individually in, the, in the, 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 the church at large in Rome, the members themselves needing to change so they can become one body, what is it that Paul writes to the church in Rome? He says, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. I want you in your Bible someplace, or maybe on your smart device, highlight those words, God's kindness. Because that brings us to the second part of our text in Luke chapter 13. There is a committed kindness that leads to salvation. Jesus, after the hard sayings, breaks into storytelling. And he's a master storyteller. There's this man, and everybody gets a visual of what it's, what's happening in their, in their mind's eye. A man has a, f a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He goes out looking for fruit, but he doesn't find any. So he tells the man in charge of the tree, this is what I want you to do. I've been coming out here for three years looking for fruit, not producing fruit. You need to cut down that tree. In fact, again, the NIV has cut down literally. It's dig it out, get it roots and everything out of the ground. It's not fruitful. Now the funny thing back behind this is that this is more than just a couple of years. In Luke chapter 19, verse 23, Moses instructs the people that when you plant a tree, it should be given three years to grow, in which the fruit during that time would be forbidden. So you got three years. The very next verse in Luke chapter 19, verse 24, the fourth year, the fruit of that, tr that tree would be offered to the Lord. So now you're in the fourth year. And now he says, for three years I've been looking for fruit and there aren't any. For seven years this tree has been taking up space in the vineyard. It's been taking nutrients from the soil. It's not producing fruit. It's not doing what it's supposed to do, what it's supposed to be. A tree that bears fruit, so dig it completely out. Tree needs to go. And pretty much, I would imagine, everyone gets that. But then there's this fellow that's taking care of the tree. The owner says to him, I want you to dig that tree out. This fellow says, let's give it another year. Let's give it a little bit more time. Let's give it time. Let me cultivate it. Let me do things to it that will help it to bear fruit. Let me, let me dig around it and fertilize it and water it and, and take care of it. Let me help this tree for one more year to bear fruit. Now, the tree needs to be cut down. But it has been given more time, more adequate time, to produce fruit. The tree is on borrowed time, but the tree gets a reprieve. The parable, the parable of, of the fig tree tells us something really important about Jesus the Messiah. Repentance is how you get into the kingdom. Unless you repent, you will perish. In essence, what Jesus is doing in the telling of this story is to, to relay to people that He wants to bring people to repentance in order for them to not get what they deserve. His ministry 
was to help people figure it out. To come to their senses. There's this passage that we read a lot at, um, at baptisms, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I want you just to hear these words as if you're hearing them for the first time. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. I think to me it's one of the greatest passages that talks about the transformation that takes place when somebody figures it out. That this is the life that I was living at one point. I was I was foolish and deception and enslaved to all kinds. I was enslaved to all kinds of passions and to all kinds of pleasures that, that were really I thought I was the master of, of, of my own life and, and the direction of my own life, only to find that all of these passions and all of these other things were in fact enslaving me. There was malice and there was envy and hating people and, and being hated. But then all of a sudden, that life was able to be contrasted and to be compared with the kindness and the love of God our Savior when He appeared in the form of Jesus. Saved us. And it wasn't because we were righteous. No, we were malice and envy and enslaved and hating and being hated not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. You know, one of, the, one of the incidental things in that story about the prodigal son, and to me, over the years, it's become one of the most uh, emotionally uh, powerful, poignant moments of that entire parable, is here's, the, here's this kid who... Uh, for all intents and purposes, wishes that the father's dead. Just gone. Off the scene. He wants to, to, to navigate his own life. Hand on the steering wheel, the management of his own affairs. And for, again, for inexplicable reasons, the father gives him his inheritance, and he takes that inheritance and loads down his pockets and loads down whatever it is he's going to travel with, and he heads off into a far, far, he goes way off into the distant land. And he lives and he lives and he lives and he lives only to realize that what he thought was really living was a downward spiral into eating the food of animals that he considered all of his life to be unclean, to not be kosher. And now he's eating their food. He is at their level. And the Bible says that he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses, which means that he's figuring something out, that life in my father's house, even if I go back as a hired hand, even as I go back as a servant, that's a better life than the life that I have right now. Even if I go back and I never get, never get the name back, at least, at least my life will be sustained in a better way than it is right now. And so he decides that he's going to change direction. He's been leaving the father, going off in that far land. He literally changes directions, coming to his senses, and goes back to the father. 
And he's rehearsing in his mind the kinds of things that he wants to say. You know, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve that. Just make me like one of the hired men. And he's rehearsing it and rehearsing it and trying to anticipate maybe what the father's going to say. And he is the most surprised individual. Second, only to the hearers of this story in the time of Jesus. And as he shows up, and the, the old man, the father, sees him from the front porch. The old man does what no patriarch in the ancient Mediterranean world would do. He ran. Patriarchs don't run. It's so unbecoming. It's so unpatriarchal. But he takes his, his, his tunic and he wraps it around himself and he runs as fast as he can down the driveway out to the dirt road and grabs that boy and hugs him and falls on the ground and kisses him. Why that kindness? How could the one that had been so wronged by that son, by that, that person that he brought into the world, how could he, how could he show that kind of, of love and, and demonstrate that kind of kindness in that moment? It's because he had been kissing him in his heart since the day he left. That's not just what made it possible for the boy to come back, but made it a reality. And that, my friends, is what repentance is. Repentance is not something that you do once in life. Repentance is, is what you do as you always are, are, are trying to line your life up with the will of God and the presence of God. And, 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 and from time to time, you kind of go off track, and repentance is about putting that, that life back on track. But it all begins with a big repentance that happens. That happens when you figure it out. That what God wants for me to make me His son, make me His daughter, to bless me, to regardless of whatever I might encounter in this life, to bless me with joy and with peace and with strength and direction and significance that joy that's inexplicable, that peace that passes understanding. Yeah, you, you can't get it any other way except to get it from the God who gives it to you, not by anything that you've done, except, as Philippians chapter 3 says, make sure the Lord is near. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now, an invitation song. And the reason it's an invitation song is because we're inviting people to respond to God to respond to the, the Word of God, to respond to the message, to respond to a need that you might have in your heart. And that need this morning might be to, having figured it out, to repent, to change direction, and to come home to God, and, and to find out how, how it is that you line your life up with His will for your life, beginning today and for the rest of your life. We're going to have some shepherds down here at the front that are going to talk to you about those very specific things. If that describes you this morning, then come forward and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Created.